Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, as we begin this morning a new series on the book of 2 Timothy, I've entitled the overall series, Rising to the Challenge, because 2 Timothy is a plea from the Apostle Paul that Timothy would pick up the gospel baton and run with it, because uh, Paul knows as he writes this letter that he's about to pass off the scene and die. And uh, there's the need for Timothy to grow up in the faith and pass the faith along to others. Now, I've chosen 2 Timothy because beginning in a, a few weeks, mid-September, we will be back into our discipleship series on Sunday nights, The Disciples' Path. And I can't think of a book that would go more along with The Disciples' Path than uh, 2 Timothy. And so Sunday morning is going to try to enhance what we do uh, on Sunday night. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, looking this morning at the subject matter, Saving Grace and Supernatural Power. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as, I, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Father, as we begin a study of this book, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. He inspired this book. And Father, I pray that you would open up our understanding that we might see, that we might clearly see and understand the treasures that you have waiting for us as we walk through this book verse by verse. And as Jesus prayed for the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Lord, open our eyes and ears, and may we understand what your Spirit is saying to your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Saving grace and supernatural power. Now folks, as we go through the book of 2 Timothy, I want you to keep the following verses in the backdrop. Keep them in your mind as we go through this book. You'll recognize these verses. They show up in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. They're very familiar words. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, folks, we know those words as the Great Commission. And again, I want to ask you to keep those words in your mind as we begin this study of 2 Timothy. Now, as we come to 2 Timothy, we know from the basic chronology of Paul's life that Paul is about to die. Paul is in prison now for the second time and and there is no hope, no expectation in his life that he will be delivered out of this imprisonment. He's about to die. And yet as we read 2 Timothy, we are struck by the fact that there is absolutely no fear in his life and there is no regret. In fact, right off in verse 1 here, he mentions the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. Now later on in chapter 1, Paul will say, For I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. What a wonderful testimony. There is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now folks, in the pastoral epistles, which would be First and Second Timothy and Titus, The name Jesus Christ appears 32 times. Now something unique about 2 Timothy, almost always in 2 Timothy, Paul reverses the order. Instead of saying Jesus Christ, he says Christ Jesus. Now by moving Christ to the front of the sentence there, to the front of the name, uh, that is a place of emphasis and he is emphasizing that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Now I want you to think how staggering a thought that is for a man who was a Jewish rabbi and as Saul, we know that Saul fought against the church. He fought against Uh, Jesus Christ and everything that Jesus Christ stood for but there on the road to Damascus Jesus Christ got a hold of Paul he uses the term in Philippians that he apprehended him and he changed his life and from then on Paul was the greatest propagator of the gospel what a wonderful testimony of the power of God to change a man's life Now Paul, who is ready to die, knows that death for the Christian involves the promise of life. Like he said to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now folks, allow me in this first message to maybe go a little more in depth into the introductory parts before we get into the meat of the message. But again, we know that as we come to this book, Paul is addressing this letter to Timothy. But the assumption is, and the intention of the Apostle Paul without a doubt is, that Timothy will share this entire letter with the church that he now pastors, the church at Ephesus. Now two things point to that. 
First of all, right off in verse 1 of chapter 1, the introduction is more stilted, it's more lofty, it's more formal than we would expect if Paul were simply addressing this letter to Timothy and Timothy alone. But secondly, as the letter closes at the end of chapter 4, Paul says, grace be to you, and the you there is not the singular, but it is the plural. And so again, Paul's intention is that Timothy will take this letter and read it to the entire church. Now in writing to Timothy, let's think back, let's reflect back a little bit on Paul's association with Timothy. Take your Bibles and turn with me if you would please to Acts chapter 16. Because in Acts chapter 16, that's where we first meet young Timothy. In Acts 16, Paul's on his first missionary journey. And there in verse 1 it says, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now also turn over to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19, listen to what the Apostle Paul tells the church at Philippi about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also." And so Timothy, or 2 Timothy, I should say, is a moving letter from the Apostle Paul to a younger man that has become his son in the faith. And in 2 Timothy, Paul is concerned that Timothy would rise to the occasion. Again, Paul knows he's about to die. And that means that Timothy and others like Timothy are going to have to pick up the gospel baton that Paul is handing off to him. Now the Greek scholar and commentator Hanley Mool says as you read this letter it's like this letter is written in more than just ink. You can sense the mist in Paul's eyes. You can almost see his tears as he's writing to this letter. He's officially charging Timothy in 2 Timothy to rise to the challenge and carry on in his absence and do with others exactly as Paul has done with him. Timothy needs to invest his lives in others and likewise challenge them to rise to the occasion, invest their lives too, instill others. 
Now, folks, that is the ever-present need of the church when it comes to discipleship. We simply must pass on the faith to those who are coming after us. Never before has there been such a need. We're told today that millennials are walking away from the church in record numbers. Dr. Willis has recommended a book to people recently called The Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That book illustrates how the younger generations are now claiming no religious affiliation whatsoever. They are simply a product now of a secular culture. Now we assume they don't want to hear about the gospel because they're not coming to church. But what we're finding out about the millennials, they say that they are more than willing and more than available to sit down with a friend or family member who is a Christian and hear more about their faith. They don't want the church to be their first exposure to the gospel, but they're saying they're more than open to sitting down with us. And so the challenge is ours that we need to be ready and equipped to do just that. I'd say to our young people, we need you. We need you desperately. And we need you being discipled. And as you're being discipled, we need you in turn to disciple others who will be coming after you as well. As somebody has written, God may bury his servants, but his work marches on. God is challenging each of us in here through this book to invest in others. In light of the declining evangelical church in America today, folks, I can't think of a greater message that the church needs to hear than the message that is contained in 2 Timothy. Now we're going to see in our verses this morning that while it's great to have been blessed with a a spiritual heritage in our families, there's the need for each of us to fan into flames what God has done in our lives, and to personally take a bold stand for Jesus Christ. First of all, with me this morning, I want you to know there's, there is great importance to our relationship with fellow believers. There is great importance to our relationship with fellow believers. Look again at what Paul says beginning there in verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul continually prays for Timothy. And Paul longs to see Timothy. As we've seen already, there was a bond that existed between these two men. There was Christian fellowship between these two men that was precious to both of them. Again, Timothy was like Paul's son in the faith. And folks, I hope you have people like that in your life. You know, we are far richer because of the relationships that we have. And I hope you have lots and lots of Christian relationships. 
You know, I've noticed something about Christian relationships. It doesn't matter where you go in the world, when you find fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it is like there's an instant bond between you. Christian fellowship's important. Now I want you to remember something as Paul says he is praying day and night for Timothy and longing to see him. Folks, that's probably not an exaggeration. Remember Paul's background when he was Rabbi Saul. The Jews practiced three times of prayer every day. Their morning prayers, their afternoon prayers, and their evening prayers at 9, at 3, and at 6. And without a doubt, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was still a Jewish rabbi, would have observed that because in Philippians 3, he talks about how he kept all the traditions of the faith and the laws and how he was blameless as a Pharisee. So Paul had this instilled discipline and habit in his life of continually praying all throughout the day. Now I assume when he became a believer, when he became a Christian, no doubt he continued that discipline of prayer. Night and day he was a man of prayer. And he says here that any time he goes before the Lord in prayer, he is praying for young Timothy. Now folks, I would suggest you and I do the same without being legalistic about it, that you and I would set some times throughout the day that, that when that time comes, we would devote those minutes to prayer. And as we do so, that we would pray for one another in the fellowship. It's important that we do that. We need to cherish the relationship, the fellowship that we have with one another because every time we come to church and we spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, some of them are facing things in their lives that maybe they don't even tell us about, but we know that even God's people go through trials and tribulations. And so we need one another. We need to, we need to develop our relationship with one another and we need to pray for one another and that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy he's doing with him do you love the Christian fellowship do you realize the importance of Christian fellowship that you have with other brothers and sisters in the Lord and do you pray for them you see folks the Bible says that is one of the signs that we have been genuinely converted. Remember what John said about that in 1 John. He says one of the marks that we are genuine believers is that we love the fellowship of Christians. John says if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ you abide in darkness even now. Some years ago I told you a story that was told to me by Dr. Charles Page at First Baptist in Charlotte. He spoke of going to a mountain church to preach a revival and when he got there he couldn't believe his eyes. There was a fence down the middle aisle of the church. It was a rail and he asked the preacher why it was there. The preacher didn't know. They asked the deacons. The deacons didn't know. The pastor said, well I know a man who will know. He's in his 90s and he's been here all his life and so they went to that man and he said, I know why that fence is down the middle aisle of the church. He said, I'll tell you, years ago we had a terrible fight in the fellowship. 
And instead of splitting the congregation and becoming two congregations, those who felt one way decided they'd sit on this side of the church. Those who felt the other way would sit on that side of the church. We'd build a fence down the middle. And through the years, the two sides never fellowshiped with one another. Dr. Page said, don't you think it's time we tear down that fence? That man said, not as long as I'm living. And then Dr. Page read him those verses out of 1 John. If we don't love the brethren, we abide in death. He said the next night when they got to the revival services that evening, that man was there personally with his claw hammer and he was tearing down that fence. Folks, our relationship with fellow believers is so important. We need to long for one another. We need to desire fellowship with one another. And we need to pray for one another. That's why Hebrews 10, 25 and following says, We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but we're to stir one another up and provoke one another to love and good deeds and all the more as we see the day approaching. Do you understand the importance of your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul did with Timothy. And Timothy did with Paul. And that's why in chapter 4, Paul's going to also tell Timothy, Timothy, come to me as soon as you can. Come to Rome. And when you come, bring a cloak because winter is approaching and also bring the parchments. But he wanted to see Timothy. And by the way, on top of seeing Timothy, he also wanted to see John Mark. Christian Fellowship. Secondly this morning, there is great blessing in our spiritual heritage. Assuming it's the right Christian heritage, of course. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you also. Paul is convinced of Timothy's sincere faith. Now, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time here because we've covered this verse before in other messages. But the word that Paul uses here for sincere is the word hypocrite. But then in front of that word hypocrite, he places the, Greek, the first letter in the Greek alphabet... Uh, the alpha, the, the, the A as we would say. The alpha privative. And what that does is cancel out or reverses the meaning of that word. And so again he uses the word hypocrite, puts the alpha privative in front of it, meaning that Timothy's faith is a non-hypocritical type faith. Folks, we do the same thing in English. We use the alpha privative. Take, for instance, the word theist. A theist is somebody who believes in God. But you put the A in front of it, it becomes atheist, somebody who says they don't believe in God. That's what he's doing here. He's using that word hypocrite with the alpha primitive in front of it. He's saying, Timothy, as I think of you, that's the kind of faith that you have. You have a faith that is a non-hypocritical type faith. You're not two-faced. You're the same in one setting as you are in another setting. Now, originally in Greek drama and plays, the word hypocrite meant that you were, you were just talented. You were a talented actor. 
Because by the stage, they would have posts with pegs on it and multiple masks hanging on that post. And in one scene, you might come out and put on the mask of the good guy. In another scene, you might come out and put on the mask of the bad guy. You were a hypocrite. You were a talented actor or actress. You could play two different parts. You were two-faced. And that was a good thing. But then, of course, the word came to have negative connotations like it does today. Timothy had a non-hypocritical type faith. Folks, he was real. He was genuine. He was the real deal. He was not two-faced. And what Paul notes about Timothy being the real deal is that this same kind of Christian faith and example also dwelt in his grandmother and his mother. Now, we don't know exactly when Lois and Eunice came to faith in Christ. We would assume it was during maybe Paul's first missionary journey. We're not told about that. But they had become Christians, and they were genuine in their faith, and they had passed on their faith to young Timothy. Folks, isn't that the way it ought to be in a Christian home? That's the way it ought to be. Now, some of you in here are single parents, or maybe you're the parent, the other parent doesn't support what you do related to the Christian faith, and you're tempted to be discouraged and give up and maybe not try to invest as much in your kid when it comes to church. It's far easier to sleep in on Sunday morning the way your mate does and not even come to church. And I would encourage you not to do that. Take the example of Lois and Eunice. Timothy's mom evidently didn't have the support of Timothy's dad. He was an unbeliever. But yet his mom instilled her faith in Timothy. And that faith had dwelt first in her mother. Isn't that a wonderful testimony? It's a great testimony. Parents don't sleep in on Sunday mornings. Bring the kid, come and bring the kids with you, even if your mate doesn't support you in that. You know, I think about my own testimony growing up. My dad, most of my life, has been unchurched. And it would have been so easy for my mom just to kind of follow his pattern. But every single Sunday, she got me and my sister up and got us ready and took us to church. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time the doors were open. She brought us to church. And I'm thankful for that. And by the way, without a shadow of a doubt in my mind, I'm a Christian today and in the ministry because of my mom's mom. You see, my mom was one of six kids. And the story that they've related to me when my grandmother was pregnant with my mom, my mom is the second oldest, when my grandmother was pregnant with my mom, she bathed that pregnancy in prayer that when the baby was born, it would be a boy and God would save him and call him to preach. When my mom was born... My grandmother didn't think God had answered her prayers because, see, that was back in the day that women especially weren't in the ministry and didn't preach. So she thought that God had just passed over her prayers. 
But folks, God answered her prayers. He just delayed it a generation. Amen? But I think of my own family, my mom and my grandmother, and that's exactly how Timothy was. Timothy had his mother and his grandmother to look back to as those examples of a non-hypocritical, a sincere faith. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, when I think of you, that's exactly how you are. You're following in the footsteps of your mother and grandmother. What a great spiritual heritage Timothy had. If you don't have that heritage in your family, why don't you commit this morning that you're going to be the first one in your family line to start that? That future generations in your family can look back to you. There's great blessing in our spiritual heritage. Thirdly, I want you to see this morning, there's a great need that we understand our urgent calling. In verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Notice what he says here, fan into flames. Folks, the tendency is that we all lose some of our zeal and love for Christ if we're not careful. General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, once sent a message to those under him. He said, the tendency of fire is to go out, watch the fire on the altar of your heart. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Now the NIV is a great translation here. It says, fan into flames the gift of God that's within you. That's the meaning of the word. You see, fires have to be stoked up. Coals have to be stoked up. You have to pay attention to them. And so here we see a beautiful balance between the sovereignty of God on the one hand and human responsibility on the other hand. You know, Christians used to say, just let go and let God. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, Timothy, you've got a responsibility to fan into flames the gift of God that is within you. Yes, God has saved you and called you by His grace, as he's going to point out in verse 9. But that doesn't mean that you just sit back and coast and take a saved and satisfied approach to life. You've got to fan into flames the gift of God that is in you. Now there may be an indication here that young Timothy has begun to lose some of his passion and fire for the Lord. Maybe Timothy was a little bit discouraged because his mentor, the Apostle Paul, was now in prison and they fully expected that Emperor Nero would probably take Paul's life, which tradition says he did. Maybe Timothy's discouraged by that. Maybe seeing his mentor go through all of his trials and tribulations, maybe that's caused Timothy to kind of pull back a little bit. And Paul's saying here, don't do that. And we know that evidently Timothy tended to be a little bit timid and weak and have some health problems himself because in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't just drink water now, drink a little wine for your stomach and your many infirmities. And so apparently Timothy tended to be a little bit of a sickly fellow. Timothy is being told here by Paul, 
that he needs to fan his faith and his gift into flames. Now what's Paul referring to when he says fan into flames the gift of God that is within you? Well, scholars are generally decided that it's, it's two possibilities here. The gift of God within him on the first hand, the, the first order, that it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God within him. Folks, every child of God is baptized in the Holy Spirit the moment they're saved. But we can grieve the Spirit and we can quench the Spirit. Timothy is being told here to fan into flames the gift of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 16? He said, I'm going away and it's to your advantage that I'm going away because when I go away, I'm going to pray to the Father that He will send another and He will be your comforter and teacher and He will bring to your mind all things that you need to know. And then again, Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.13 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit the moment that we become believers so again Timothy needs to fan into flames the gift of the spirit the second possibility may be a reference to his spiritual gift Timothy was now the pastor of the church at Ephesus and so we can assume that his gift was that of being a pastor teacher he needed to fan that gift into flames Now, assuming that that was Timothy's gift, he would need to study and he would need to prepare his mind because a call to preach is a call to prepare. He would need to develop leadership skills. He would need to develop his social skills. I think there are some pastors today who love to be around people, but they hate to study and their message is reflected. There are others who love to study but hate being around people and their ministries show that. Folks, it's not either or, it's both and. And Timothy needed to uh, fan that flame, that gift into flames. He needed to develop it. I've got a question for you. Do you know what your gift is? And are you fanning it into flames? If it is the Holy Spirit that's being referred to here, are you quenching the Spirit or are you grieving the Spirit? You need to yield to the Spirit. You need to daily be filled with the Spirit. And your surrender to Him, you need to fan that into flames every day. I like what John R.W. Stott says about Romans 12. He said, it's like every day we need to roll out of bed and roll up onto the altar and say, here I am, God, I'm yours. If it's spiritual gifts being referred to here, do you know what yours is? And are you developing it? And are you using it in the body of Christ for the glory of God? You see, folks, God has not called us in the church to be spectators. He's called us to know what our part is. Some of you are hands, some of you are feet, some of you are ears, some of you are eyes, some of you are a mouthpiece. God has put all the parts of the body together according to His sovereign design. And if you don't know what your gift is and you're not practicing your gift, guess what? The whole entire church is hurt. Do you know what your gift is? And are you fanning it into flames? And are you using it? 
You need to hear the same challenge here that Paul was giving to Timothy. And then in verse 7, he, say, he points out here that Timothy can do this because he says, God has not given us a spirit of pe- uh, fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Now, almost all of the better commentators today say that verse 7 is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that God has given us, capital S. Almost all of the better scholars say that. And yet on the other hand, so many translations today put the S in the lowercase, referring to the human spirit. I'm not quite sure I understand the disconnect between what scholars write and then the translations because you see it's these same scholars who are on the translation teams. And in their writings, their commentary, they say it's capital S, but in so many other translations it shows up little s. I believe it's capital S. The spirit God has given us doesn't lead you to be filled with fear but he's given you power. Now think of how that ties in with practicing your spiritual gift and fanning it into flames. Because let's say in the church you have the gift of teaching and yet you're you're scared to teach. You say, I can't get up in front of anybody. Or maybe your gift is mercy. You ought to be going into hospital rooms and nursing homes and you ought to be visiting with people and ministering to people. And you say, Pastor, I'm afraid to go into somebody's home or I'm afraid to go into their room and, and minister to them. That scares me to death. Well, if God's given you that gift you can also know he's given you the Holy Spirit who will equip you with power to be able to do it you know I can relate to that need I grew up very timid Connie will tell you that the last thing in the world I would do would ever be to speak in public that ought to make you laugh now right I could carry you to Oakhurst Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I could show you where I was sitting one day, about where Michael Mooney is sitting. And I'm sitting back there in my pew, and I'm looking up at the preacher, and I'm thinking there is absolutely no way that I could ever get up there and do that. And then God called me to preach. God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? Are you timid? Are you fearful? God can give you power. Remember Acts 1.8, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, He will give you power to be His witnesses. God gives power in place of fear. God also gives love. Look at what He says here. I did not know that story that uh, Max Pendleton told you last week about his only child, his son, who was a police officer and he was gunned down by a man and his life was taken. Max and Virginia lost their only child. Now, what would the natural man be filled with? He'd be filled with hate towards that man who killed his son. He'd want want vengeance on that. But as Max told you last week, what he prayed for was the opportunity to go into the prison because he wanted that man who killed his son, he wanted that man to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. He wanted that man to come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. 
Folks, only God can do that in a man's life. God gives us his love. The word here is agape love. It is that love that is the self-giving type love that you're able to look at others, set your own needs aside and minister to them because you love them with God's love. What did God do? As God looked at a lost and a dying and a dark world, God got involved for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you're filled with God's love, You're not going to be satisfied to sit back and ignore everything around you. God not only gives us love, but He gives us self-control as well. Somebody has called this the sanity of saintliness. Philip Towner says, Paul has in mind a measure of control over one's thinking and actions that allows a balanced outlook on any situation. When everything is coming unglued, uh, Towner writes, this quality of level-headedness will keep the Christian focused calmly on the power and love that the Spirit provides, and so it makes perseverance in life and ministry possible. Paul's point to Timothy in these verses is a needed word to us today. We can't just sit back and rest in our spiritual heritage. We need to get fired up. We need to stay close to the Lord knowing He'll give us everything we need. We need to understand that God will help us. We need to find out what our place in the body of Christ is. We need to get busy. We need to grow. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on Jesus and put our eyes on a lost and a dying world you and I have been saved to serve folks in the Bible election isn't simply for privilege it is election is for service God saves us that we'll go and tell And that's why Paul is going to say in the very next chapter, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Church, you and I need to rise to the challenge. We need to grow, and as we're growing, we need to invest our lives in others and then challenge them to keep that pattern going. Keep passing the gospel baton baton to others. Run your race. But as you run your race, invest your life in others. That's what we're going to see in in 2 Timothy. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes uh, this morning. And as you do so, do you need to recommit your life this morning to Christian relationships? Even though you're here this morning, obviously, perhaps as a pattern in your life, you have begun to be negligent in your Christian fellowship. Maybe you've been negligent in praying for fellow believers. I want to ask you to make a definite decision this morning to change that. You need the fellowship of believers. You need their prayer support. And they need the same from you. Do you need to recommit this morning to Christian fellowship? 
the altar's going to be open. If you need a church home, we'd love to be your church home. You come forward as well. Maybe this morning you don't have the rich spiritual heritage that Timothy did. You can't do anything about that. That's, that's in the past. But you can say, God, by your grace and by your power this morning, I want to be that first one in my family who begins that kind of heritage that Timothy enjoyed. Finally, fan into flames the gift of God within you. Yield your life to the Holy Spirit's working on a daily basis. Find out what your spiritual gift is and get busy developing it and using it for the glory of God. If you don't know Christ, it's not a coincidence you're here this morning. Maybe you need to come forward and say, Pastor, everything you're talking about this morning, I kind of feel like I'm on the outside looking in. But God's been working in my life. I need to know Him. I need to be saved. Let me pray with you this morning. Lord, you know all the needs here this morning. I pray that you would work in your wisdom and in your power. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.